All of us are on a complicated journey of faith, pursuing truth and deeper knowledge of God. But how do we know we're doing it right? Many of you know that faith is a complicated thing, and it can be a painful and difficult journey, and far too often we are not given a space where we can safely address the complications and issues that arise naturally. My name is Joshua Patterson, and one of my best friends, Marty Frederick, and I have agreed to join each other in creating exactly that kind of space where questions and critical thinking are welcome. We want to look honestly at the issues and questions plaguing the Christian church today and to genuinely seek out what it means to live like Jesus in our ever-changing world, in our expanding universe, and in our pluralistic society. We believe that doubt is not the enemy of faith, but perhaps one of its greatest allies. We think that the Christian life is more about asking the right questions than it is about finding the answers. And we believe we are being called to continually ask those questions, renewing our minds and rethinking our faith in the process. Thank you for joining us on that journey. Well, welcome to another episode of the Rethinking Faith podcast. As always, I'm one of your hosts, Josh Patterson, and we have something special for you guys this morning. With me today is the one and only Dr. John Cobb. Dr. Cobb, how are you doing this morning? Well, um, I'm I'm feeling badly that I didn't get a little bit better prepared, but uh, (laughs) (laughs) otherwise I'm feeling fine. No worries. I think it'll be fun regardless. I've still got my bathrobe on. (laughs) That is okay. (laughs) We are still in the midst of quarantine and bathrobes are rather comfortable. I I have gotten so used to being quarantined. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Haven't we all? Yeah. Well, Dr. Cobb, just for uh, listeners who maybe aren't familiar with you and your work, can you just tell us a little bit about uh, who you are and, and what you do? Well, um, I am, of course, retired and have been retired a long time, but I'll go back and say that when I was a student at the University of Chicago in the years, right, I was on the GI Bill from veterans, as veterans got from war, uh, participating in the Army in World War II. And... Uh, I learned that many of the problems for faith came from the fact that we had adopted a basic worldview that was very uncongenial to faith. Mm. And um, that can be described in many ways. And if you want me to do that, I can do that later. But I'll just say, I found that there was another possibility. And so I've been devoting my life to what we call the process movement. Mm-hmm. We, we think that events are more fundamental than objects. And the kind of event that we put most emphasis on is like a moment of human experience. Mm. So experience is more fundamental a better model for thinking about reality than a cup. Mm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but yet our whole economic system, 
and our university system is based on the cup rather than on the moment of experience. So, mm. so it's a uh, you you put yourself outside of mainstream. Now theology has been very mixed up about this. The Bible talks about history, and that means you focus on unique events and and exp what humans actually experience is fundamental. Mm. But in the Greek world, they focused on cups. <laughs> And so we tried to translate, our ancestors tried to translate the Bible into cup talk rather than event talk. Mm. The creeds are the result of that. They talk about substances and hypostases. The Bible doesn't talk about that. Sure, sure. So sure. we think that process thinking or event thinking is more appropriate, more helpful in understanding our scriptures mm. than the substance thinking that has dominated, but that makes us heretics because <laughs> the substance thinking went out in the church. Yes, very much so. Mm. Awesome, well, wonderful. That I like that, that, that analogy is super helpful. Um, that's really good. And real quick, just before um, we move on, I wanted to give a, a quick sh a shout out uh, to an individual uh, named Trip Fuller, uh, who I know you know. Uh, Trip helped me um, in preparation for this interview, and so I just wanted to to All thank right. Trip. Yes. So well, Trip, thank you so much. I'll, I'll thank Trip too. Awesome. <laughs> I owe him a lot. Yes, Trip is is wonderful. Um, so. Dr. Cobb, it's uh, my understanding that you grew up as a Methodist missionary kid. Yes. And so how has that experience kind of impacted who you are today? Well, I think that, um, that if you grow up in that way in a culture that is not a Christian culture, and you're very much aware that you, your family and you are Christian, that it, it makes theology uh, more important than it probably would have been if I had grown up in a Christian culture. But it also means that I never had a hostile or negative attitude toward people who were not Christian. Japanese were wonderful to us. They were the most hospitable people and the most, well, of course, it was at the same time that they were also trying to conquer the eastern part of the world for the emperor. So it, it was not an unambiguous matter. But uh, probably I started thinking about those things earlier and more intensely than I would have in other circumstances. But I also grew up in a time when the social gospel was the was the leading edge, the, the main line denominations in this country were mostly committed to the social gospel and that led them to the ecumenical movement and the ecumenical movement's pronouncements were generally about society and about what's happening historically. And the creedal formulations and debates about the creeds were much less important 
than uh, whether you were on the side of peace and justice. So I'm, I think I'm trying to renew the social gospel now. Sure, it's definitely much needed uh, today, especially amongst just everything. <laughs> yes, no, going no. on. Both both liberals and conservatives. Yes, have looked for other things to talk about. Mm -hmm. The only place you find something like that is in the interfaith movement. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The faith movement tends to focus upon matters of peace and justice. Yeah. So, so it's at that level rather than internal to the denominations in the United States. Mm -hmm. The World Council of Churches has always been more interested in peace and justice issues. So at that level, at the, the global level, but the closer you get back down to the local church, the harder it is to find that. Oh, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And then when, when you start talking about uh, this social gospel, uh, people start calling you all sorts of names. <laughs> well, and, and when, you, when you question their most basic assumptions, which means you question their metaphysics, mm -hmm. That's not usually just people shut down. They don't. Sure. That, that that's not an interesting topic. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. And so, um, what kind of ended up pushing you into studying philosophy as a research area? Like, what kind of questions did you have? that led you actually getting into philosophy and things like metaphysics? I guess I had the question about whether God existed. Ah, uh, okay. Yeah, that's a big one. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was very important to me personally. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. That... And, and I discovered in myself that as I allowed myself to be shaped by what I was studying and the way it was formulated, God became less real. Mm. Then I discovered that Descartes excluded God from nature. Mm -hmm. And then after, the, after Darwin, uh, the majority and the, the universities said, we are part of nature, so we exclude God from us too. Mm. And then I said, well, then maybe we should ask a question, were those moves justified? <laughs> Rather than simply allow ourselves to be victims of them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I, I was convinced, no, they were not justified. It's true that you can study nature a lot, learn a lot about nature and about us. If you exclude purpose, that was the, the main exclusion. Mm -hmm in order to show that we are all clockwork, you say purposes play no role in the world. But, I, but you and I know purposes do play a role in the world. Mm -hmm. So the metaphysics that says they don't is a bad metaphysics, so why yes. should we accept it? Yes. <laughs> it annoys me mm -hmm. that the whole university system is based on excluding purpose when we all know that purpose is important. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And so um, as 
so I'm assuming then as you started doing a lot of that research and studying philosophy, there were some key areas or tenets of your faith that you had to rethink. What were, what were some of those things that you had to rethink in your journey? Every, everything. Everything. Yes. <laughs> Good. But not, not, I didn't have to rethink my naive views okay. as much as my sophisticated views. Sure. Sure. Because on our naive views, nobody doubts that we human, no one thinks that they are just clockwork. Right. But then why do we base our educational system on something nobody believes? It seems to be a very <laughs> unwise move. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's where we are. Yeah. Yeah. And in all of your rethinking, though, you've maintain you've still been able to affirm the one that jesus called abba what yeah. what has allowed you to do that well because i'm allowed i have i allow myself to think that there is purpose in the world mm -hmm. and that the purpose in the world is accompanied by that that we should simply allow our actual experience to determine what we believe. Yeah. And in my actual experience, I find that, well, uh, a book, I, I've used the term, a call forward. A call forward. Mm -hmm. And um, I've emphasized that a lot recently because uh, Heidegger, who was an atheistic phenomenologist, also talked about the call forward. Mm. So that that's, tells me I'm not just talking about what I wish were true or something. And uh, to me, a call forward is best understood with a caller. Yes. And Heidegger had real trouble. So he said, we call ourselves forward. Mm. Okay. It doesn't feel like that to me. Sure. <laughs> I think... I think that's why his metaphysics prevented him from doing good phenomenology. Sure. And sure. since he simply shared a metaphysics with the vast majority of people, he didn't question it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, that so I, I feel that's not the only thing. I have had the experience of a deep sense of presence. And uh, if I subscribed to the dominant metaphysics, I would try to understand it was something I ate that made me a little, you know, I figure <laughs> out something. But sure. since there's no reason to a priori deny these things, mm -hmm. I simply think experience leads one to say, yes, there is love in the universe. Mm -hmm. There is purpose in the universe, and we do much better as individuals if we will open ourselves to that and mm -hmm. allow it to work more fully mm -hmm. and give up that kind of thinking that blocks it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's so beautiful. And that, um, I remember, so in the, in the tradition I grew up in, experience was always kind of viewed as a negative thing. 
I was told I couldn't trust my experience. The only thing I could trust what, you know, was the, the doctrines or the creed or the, you know, our interpretation of scripture. So unbiblical. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Nothing like like that supported in the Bible. Right. Absolutely. That, That, that need for doctrine comes from a different tradition. And the idea that God cares more about what you think than about what you feel mm. is, is, is sad. Yes. But again, you understand, I'm not, I'm not saying all conservatives are bad and liberals are good. I mean, right. I, I think we're victims yes. of decisions made a long, long time ago. Mm. And then the worst of all the decisions was made when we found out that we are part of nature. You see, there were a lot of people in the 19th century said since we are part of nature, we find out nature is not, not this machine that we, we have declared it to be. Mm-hmm. And uh, the one who formulated the alternative most richly and with the greatest precision is Alfred North Whitehead. Yes. So that doesn't mean he's right about everything. Infallibility, inerrancy are not given to human beings. Sure. And he would certainly not have claimed it, just as the Bible makes no such claim for itself. Yes. Yes. Other people want certainty, and so they impose it. But yes. But that's why Whitehead is so important to me. Mm-hmm. He is... He has dealt with so many of the issues that arise when you make this shift to thinking that events uh, and a human experience is is the place you can start because everybody can start there. But it does start there, whatever they say, wherever they say they start. Right. <laughs> they, they start with their experience. So uh, if we just allow ourselves to do what is obviously the right thing to do, <laughs> Instead of feel the need to conform to somebody else's ideas of what we should think, I think we'll mostly end up on the right side. Yes, sir. But getting freeing ourselves from substance thinking is not a, not an easy matter. Our la- you see, we have the problem that we speak Indo-European languages. Now, Hebrew is not an Indo-European language. And the Bible is not, does not belong to that culture. But if, if the, the, in India and in Europe, they, we all speak Indo-European languages, and they all support substance thinking. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They, they all, the sentences all begin with a noun or a pronoun. Yes. And in, in Japan, it's very interesting. The Japanese don't speak an Indo-European language. so, And you, you find that the word for I is a very, very rarely used. Hmm. There is a word, watakushi. And when you hear a European speaking Japanese, the word watakushi appears in every other sentence. And when I speak it, are you, I, I'm, I'm not free from the influence of my language, I assure you. But the, the Japanese don't, don't say I very much. 
and the Chinese don't say I very much. And I was hearing someone who married a Vietnamese woman and saying she never says I. Mm. But if if you're accustomed to saying I all the time, then like the Indians, that's Atman, the the true I, the deep I. And so the spiritual efforts of the Hindus are to realize that what we are, and we are substances. A substance has no characteristic, a substance is unchanging, immutable, all the things we like to, we projected on God that are totally unbiblical. So it's, but there was one thinker in India who said, no, there is no such thing as an Atman. There are no substances. His name was Gautama, we call him Buddha. Mm -hmm. And in, to this day, there are very few Indian Buddhists. Hmm. But as soon as Buddhism crossed the Himalayas, went into China, everybody said, sure, that's right. The language we speak is immensely important to how we think. And, wow. And it's very hard to think against the language that yes. you're using. Yes. So I, I, I'm not trying to say it's easy. Right. <laughs> if you're growing up speaking English, you will interpret your experience as the experience of something. I experience. Instead of thinking the experience is what is fundamental and you can discover something that you might call I. Mm -hmm. But the, the, so that's very, very different. Yes. Yeah, so it's, it's more so that we are an experience, not that we have experiences. That's right. That's right. 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 And I am an aspect of my experience. Yes. Wonderful. But but that's our language doesn't help us. I, I think you can see that. Yeah. Yes, sir. Yeah. yeah, and so you had mentioned uh, Whitehead. Who, yeah. For listeners who don't know, Whitehead uh, was known for what's called process philosophy. Yes. And he influenced your work uh, greatly, and and some have even referred to you as the father of process theology. And so, for people who have no idea what is process theology. Can you just kind of give us um, a brief intro to that? Okay. Well, first, let, let me say I'm definitely not the father. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I learned process, process thinking at the University of Chicago mm -hmm. from Charles Hartson on the one side and from the teachers in the Divinity School on the other. Mm -hmm. uh, now... Um, Whitehead was not there, and I learned a little bit about Whitehead from both. Okay. It, it was very interesting. Charles Hartson is a rationalist. And the, the people in the Divinity School were all radical empiricists. Now, those terms may not be familiar to your hearers either, but it just means 
one just tries to reason everything out and the other is a little suspicious of our ability to reason and wants to stick as closely as possible to experience. Mm -hmm. But so it was a rational and um, to this day there are process thinkers who are more rational and process thinkers who are more empiricists. And Whitehead himself was neither of those, or both, you might say. He was a speculative thinker. Okay. And I'm a speculative thinker. I'm a speculative process thinker. Mm-hmm. And so if you, if you simply talk about speculative process theology, I, I have played a role at a very early stage. I wouldn't say I was the only one that was a man by the name of Pittenger, who mm-hmm. Episcopalian, who was older than I, and I'm sure started writing before I did, and so forth. So I'm I'm still not not the father. <laughs> not sure. Nevertheless, I was instrumental in creating a journal and yes. instrumental in creating an organization, and those things do make a difference. Uh, I will claim credit. (laughs) (laughs) Very good. Okay, but what is it? It just means that you look at all of the questions, and if theology is what I was a theologian, so naturally those were very central questions for me. And you ask the question, who was Jesus? And you don't ask that question the way the Greeks and Romans asked it you try to ask it the way it's asked in the Bible. And uh, then that turns you into a heretic very quickly. It's, it's <laughs> really surprising how heretical the Bible is. <laughs> but uh, I happen not, not to think that orthodoxy is necessarily right when it differs from the Bible. Mm-hmm. See, according to orthodoxy, God is immutable and impassable. Mm-hmm. Where in the Bible is anything of that sort suggested or hinted at? <laughs> Absolutely nowhere. I agree. I okay. agree. But I'm a heretic because I believe God is mutable and passable. Yes. You see, I mean, so I, I, I don't want to put too much on that. I just mean the idea that we have a right doctrine that we must subscribe to, and if you don't subscribe to it, you're not a Christian, annoys me. Sure. Especially when the people who affirm that say the Bible is inerrant and infallible and makes no mistakes. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Well, I'm easily irritated, I think. Okay, that's fine. That I think that shows passion and, and care, which I think is are both good traits. And um, uh, a book that was very helpful to me that I read recently was uh, an introduction, uh, introduction ex, an introductory exposition process theology um, by yours yourself and uh, David, David Ray Griffin. Griffin. Yes, mm-hmm. yes. Well, that's not a new book by any means, but right. it, it was. At the time we wrote it, I don't think anything quite like that existed. Mm-hmm. So I think we were filling a space. Yeah. Yes. 
Yeah, and it was helpful. So I'll link that in the show notes for listeners, but also just for your your average lay people and lay theologians, when they hear the phrase process theology, what would you like them to think of? Like what what would your hope be comes to mind for them? Well, I would hope that they would understand that when we say God loves us, that we mean it in a very strict and literal sense rather Mm. than than the way orthodoxy develops it. Yes. And that we definitely do not think that God expressed his love by sending his son to be slaughtered in our place. Mm-hmm. There are, that, that we don't think that using substantialist language should be made the norm for, for all Christians trust their experience much more, mm-hmm. but to feel the responsibility that we have, to feel that God is calling us constantly, mm-hmm. and we are free to respond fully to the call or to do other things. I, I think, I, I don't think any of that is strange to Christians. Sure. But uh, it, it's not part of the official teaching. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, that that notion that that God loves us is what drew me personally to start exploring open and relational theology, yes, because sure. that's, you know, that is the only way it made sense to me to say God loves me is within that framework. And then ultimately, the open and relational uh, introduced me into the process world as well. Sure. Um, you know, with some help from friends like uh, Trip Fuller and, and yeah. Dr. Thomas J. Ord and... Um, well, like in, that. in a sense, the only difference between process theology and open relational theology is that uh, process theology came more out of the university world. Okay. And open and relational theology is more out of the uh, evangelical. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I think the authentically evangelical branch of conservatism. I mean, some conservatives, I don't think, are telling us good news. Right. And for them to call themselves evangelicals doesn't make sense. (laughs) But there are people who are deeply and genuinely evangelical, and the only form they have known to have it in is is biblicist rather than biblical. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But... But I think many of them are willing to read the Bible and say, find, find out what it says rather than what other people say about it. Yes. And that, that shift, that shift leads you to open and relational. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And um, mm-hmm. so in, in your career, you kind of uh, made a shift uh, to focusing on the ecological crisis. Uh-huh. And almost 50 years ago, you published your, the, you know, very first like eco philosophy text and it was titled, Is It Too Late? And I, like I said, that was almost 50 years ago. And so and I, I guess called it, I called it a theology. Yes. Yeah. A, a theology. So the question then is, is it too late? Yes, it's too late for lots and lots of things. Yeah. Um, there are millions of species of living things that are gone forever. Yeah. And the climate has already changed. 
and there's no way we can prevent it from changing furthermore. I could go down a long list. Yes. But that doesn't mean it's too late to, to greatly reduce the horrors that will otherwise come upon us. Mm -hmm. So still, I mean, we, we did make, we, we did improve some things. But on the whole, the world is a much more dangerous place now. Mm -hmm. Much of its beauty has been destroyed. I, it just has been painful to watch. I mean, the three great forests in the world. There were one of them was the Amazon, one in the Congo, and one was on the island of Borneo. Mm -hmm. And the island of Borneo has just the whole forest has been cut down. Mm -hmm. And with it go lots of species that don't exist anywhere else. So, so I, I, in a sense, yes, it's too late. Mm. We could have prevented a great deal of that. But um, it's, there are still a lot of trees in the Amazon, and even though there are fewer every year, and present plans are to make them fewer still. That's not, it's not too late to save. Mm -hmm. And the same thing be true of the Congo. So if, if we could save even one forest, that would be better than none. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And um, so your, the, um, your most recent book uh, you put out, with yes. salvation, Jesus's mission, and ours. Yes, and so that that kind of ties into that um, that conviction of yours. So, what what led you to to publish again? <laughs> well, I've, I've been I've been publishing all along. Yes, the, the one before this. Oh, yes, I think when I wrote Jesus Abba, I thought that that might be it. Yes. Okay. Okay. So, okay. And then I, as I describe in that book. Uh, I had, of course, written a lot of articles and here and there in books and talk, talked about the crisis and the importance of doing something about it. And, but I hadn't really connected my Christology and my activism. Mm -hmm. I don't mean I hadn't done it at all, but sure. not in any full way. And so uh, I thought that I thought I'd that that would be a kind of tying things together. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And um, uh, one thing that I respect so much about you is, you know, very few theologians um, have been as involved in their community as you are and, and, and have been. And so for you, how does Jesus's vision of the kingdom, how has that shaped the way you think about your local community and, and how you um invest in that? Well, uh, when I ask what was the Basileia Tothia that Jesus was talking about, it was a community. And uh, I think he felt that he had achieved a lot in his mission in Galilee, but that though he had to have the support 
of some of the leaders in Jerusalem in order to to change the relationship to, to the Romans. And I think he thought that the role of the Messiah was to prevent the Jews from continuing to act in a way that would lead to the, to the total destruction of Israel. And that by changing, you know, loving your enemy, that's so central to Jesus and so neglected by the church. <laughs> but still, I mean, I think the fact that Gandhi and King both took Jesus very seriously for the first time. It's very important to notice that the first person who took Jesus seriously was not a Christian. <laughs> it's... Putting Jesus at the center of my life doesn't make me think, think that other faiths are, are not as good, something like that. I, I, that. That's a topic in itself, but, but we have so, so distorted the, the true role of Jesus. In the world. But in any case, he's talking about a different kind of community. And the result of his, of his work was that what he was trying to realize on the whole sphere of the Jewish people of the time, that was the only way it could work to save them from destruction. It nevertheless did work in wonderful ways in, in communities, small communities. So the most positive consequence of Jesus was the spread of little communities around the Roman Empire. And those little communities became more important to lots of people than the whole empire. And they survived when the whole empire collapsed. I mean, that's a tremendous historical effect. But sadly, before the empire collapsed, it had partnered with the churches. And I'm not saying that was inherently a bad thing, but it means that what survived in the West was the Roman Catholic Church. And it was as much Roman as it was Christian. And so to this day, there are lots of Christians who support American imperialism. There's no basis for that in Jesus' message. But I think that, that there are thousands of communities in this country. Some of them have very bad theology from my point of view. And I, and I don't minimize the importance of that. But, but they are places where people experience support from each other. They don't compete, they cooperate. They don't, they don't put each other down, they try to build each other up. And um, uh, to me, that's, God is there in a way, God is not present where. And they are countercultural in a way. Now, unfortunately, they're, not as counter-cultural counter as I would like to see them be. 
And I do blame that on, the, on their metaphysics. Um, our metaphysics drives us to competitive individualism and our national policies are based on our metaphysics and we try to destroy communities all over the world. That, that's what development is all about, is destroying communities and making people function as individuals. Oh. I, you see, I always had both, I can both talk enthusiastically about where I see Jesus' influence in the world and where I see it so horribly distorted or just disappearing. Yeah, and the, the reality, like you pointed out, is that it's, it's both of those things. And it, so, it is both of those <laughs> things. Yeah, and, and but, for but, me, but, it's... When I hear the name of Jesus used to support imperialism, I just, it just makes me sick. Yes, I agree. <laughs> very much so. Yeah, we've done a couple episodes um, about that very thing. Um, and it's, I mean, I think it's one of the biggest, uh, if not the biggest, aside from like racism, uh, issue that we have within the American church today. Yeah. Um, it's a complete distortion. Uh, it's, it's spits in the face of, of Jesus. You could, you know, one can even say it's, it's antichrist. It is. Um, yeah. And, it, and it's sad. And so whenever I see the opposite taking place where community is happening and unity and that, that call forward, that, that call to love and something greater is present. Yeah. That's what gives me hope. Yes. <laughs> Well, I think we're at the same place. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I have just um, one more question for you, Dr. Cobb. Um, and it, it has to do with, and you've, you've talked about this a bunch, um, you know, you talked about your, your time in Japan and your encounter with Buddhism. Um, you've talked about unity and the interfaith movement. And so for those of us uh, who are more open to being mutually transformed by other religions, do you have any, any thoughts for us? Well, um, when, I'm, when I'm thinking about the liberal church, I'm, I'm thinking about a situation in which people think that if they are open to other traditions, they shouldn't believe anything that people in the other tradition don't believe. Mm. And it becomes a watering down of everything. Right. I think you, that you may not be in a place where that's the danger. But the danger may be not listening enough mm, to sure. the other. But I think that we do, we can deeply appreciate how very different Buddhism is. The Buddhist scriptures are from the Christian scriptures. They're totally different. The Buddhist scriptures have almost nothing to say about history. The Christian scriptures are all about history. Mm -hmm. uh, but that doesn't mean that what, if one is right, the other is wrong. Instead, it means that Buddhists have explored matters of meditation and 
spirituality in the dominant use of that term. It's not that it hasn't happened before in Christianity. I mean, there, there, are, there is that. But Buddhists have great wisdom. And since they are based upon a metaphysics I affirm, I'm especially interested in it. Sure. Yeah. So, uh, and, it's, it, and I'm in no, in no sense the only one who thinks we can learn and practice. I'm told in Japan there are as many Christians who actually practice Zen as there are Buddhists who practice Zen. Mm -hmm. And Catholics don't have as much problem with that as Protestants do. Right. So most of the practitioners are probably Catholic. But at, on that point, they are right. Sure. Yeah. So I, I think we should be trying to learn as much as we can about what the world is really like. Yes. And uh, Zen is, 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 in a sense, the least comfortable. The Pure Land Buddhists, who are far more numerous than the Zen Buddhists, this is a religion of grace. Mm -hmm. And Christianity is a religion of grace. But uh, you can really learn a lot about grace if you study. They, they have thought it through in a more rigorous way than we have. Mm -hmm. So those are just examples of where I, I find being listening. Uh, and and it's not, you, you don't really learn from Buddhism in general. What, I had two Buddhist friends who were in Claremont at the same time. One of them is one of the really best Pure Land theologians, and one of them was Masao Abe, who was Zen's missionary to the United States. And um, in our three-sided conversation, I, I and the Pure Land Buddhists were very often in ag agreement against the Zen Buddhists. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, the, again, we had, uh, I was very much involved in, well, Masao Abe and I jointly created an ongoing dialogue group. And because the Buddhism in that group was primarily Zen, because the naturalist people he knew <laughs> was Zen, uh, we got a little bit of that impression, but then we got at, at least two Tibetan Buddhists. Tibetan Buddhists and Zen Buddhists are so different from each other. They really got mad at each other. <laughs> <laughs> from a Zen point of view, all the stuff that Tibetans believed very deeply was mythology. Hmm. And Zen is the, is the most demythologized spirituality you can imagine. <laughs> but the Zen, but the Tibetan Buddhists, when they talked about remembering past lives, for example, which <laughs> is really central to the whole Dalai Lama, they don't think that's superstition. <laughs> so, for Abe and his Zen friends to dismiss it that way. 
So I'm just saying, sure. Buddhism is a very complex set of movements. Yeah. And Christianity is a very complex set of movements. Mm-hmm. So when you talk about Buddhist-Christian dialogue, well, it's dialogue between some types of Christianity and some types of Buddhism. Right, right. Yeah, I've I found, um, I read recently uh, Living Buddha, Living Christ. Uh-huh. And that was my first introductory to... Um, I don't want to mispronounce his, his name. Is it Tich Nhat Hanh? Is that how you'd say that? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, and that was wonderful. I really enjoyed that book. And I, I picked up his, um, oh, what is it called? Jesus, uh, I have it on my shelf over there. Jesus and Buddha as brothers. And so I look forward to yes. reading that next. Yeah. Um, well, uh, just don't be carried to the point of, of thinking if brothers is fine because brothers don't have to agree with each other. Right, right. Yeah. <laughs> but, but the tendency to think that we're saying the same thing in different ways mm-hmm. was maybe more, more central uh, a couple of decades ago than it is now. Okay. My, I was colleagues here in Claremont with John Hick, who was the leader okay. of that movement. Okay. But uh, it, it, it is simply not true that Jesus' mission to save, explicit mission to save Israel has analogies on the, on the Buddhist side. Sure. And uh, the great importance, in my view, of our examining what's going on historically right now I think that's biblical. Mm-hmm. And you need to understand your mission in terms of what is going on right now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is very different from almost every form of Buddhist spirituality. That, 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 I, again, I've just said this great variety and socially engaged Buddhism is a creation of about 30 years standing now. Mm-hmm. And it is very much influenced by Christianity. Mm-hmm. So I, I supervised two Buddhist dissertations, and one of them was Zen social ethics, and one of them was Pure Land social ethics. I mean, the, so there is an interest. I mean, we are influenced by Buddhists. They are influenced by us. Yes. We have a contribution. Let's not give up our distinctiveness in order to become more like them. Right. That that's process thought emphasizes the great value of difference. Mm-hmm. It's difference that makes it possible to advance. But mm-hmm. if you if you let difference be put into the either or category, then it becomes destructive. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Both and. Yes. Yes. Both and transcend and include is a phrase that, that I like. Yes. I've picked up. That's better than both and. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, Dr. Cobb, this has been uh, such a pleasure. I've really enjoyed uh, getting to spend some time with you this morning. Um, and I know our, our listeners are going to uh, benefit from this conversation as well. 
Um, I do want them to know that they can uh, go. There is uh, the Cobb Institute, and uh, that's that's a website people can go to if if they um, want to learn more about yourself and and process theology. Um, is there anything you'd like to say about the Cobb Institute? Well, uh, I, I would say we we have meetings every Tuesday morning at 10 o'clock Pacific time. Mm -hmm. And we have very interesting speakers and anybody who would like, it, I mean, if, if you're just talking about learning more about process thought, uh, there are, we, we have study groups and things like that. Okay. But, but if, but we are, interested not only in process thought, but in its implications for the world. Yes. And we like to talk about an ecological civilization. And for example, tomorrow morning at 10 o'clock, there'll be a Chinese woman from, or Hong Kong woman. Hong Kong is sufficiently different from the rest of China. Uh -huh. matters. Who knows a great deal about what the Chinese are doing in relationship to what they call ecological civilization. Mm -hmm. she, she doesn't know anything much about process thought, but once again, uh, since I think that the Chinese commitment to becoming an ecological civilization is probably globally the single most hopeful element. Yes. And she approaches it very practically and realistically in terms of what it actually means, which is yes. a great deal less than what I would like for it to mean, you understand, but, <laughs> but uh, I'm, I'd, be, I'd be very interested. And I think it's, it's an example of the kind of thing that people might be interested in and can join us in. Sure. Awesome. Well, thank you very much for that. And um, yeah, that that's one thing also that um, excites me so much about the, you know, process thought and the movement is how um, you can have this, you know, these great intellectual conversations, but then at the same time, it gets very practical. Mm -hmm. um, and it has real life implications uh, for how we live our life and how we uh, try to join the force that is calling us forward in love. And um, that's a beautiful thing. I will, I will brag about one thing, the city of Pomona, which is right next to Claremont. Okay. It used to be the main city and Claremont was just a suburb, but now Pomona has gone down economically and all of that. And uh, people have moved, people with money have moved out. It has become a Hispanic city and a rather poor city, but it has, the, it is prima. The Hispanics have finally elected one of their own to be mayor, and that's much healthier than what was going on before. And he is a wonderful mayor. And he has let, well, he has agreed to movement within the city for Pomona to join the Compassionate City Movement. Oh, wonderful. Now, the Compassionate City Movement. Uh, Cities are doing more promising things than, than nations are today. Yes. And uh, Pomona is 
leading. It has done wonderful work in self-transformation. And so that's a way we have the opportunity locally. And uh, we, we are having a role to play in Pomona. And that's something that I just recommend for people to think about. Other, is there a city or is their own city? Is there a section of the city? Are there actual communities which are transforming themselves? Mm-hmm. If so, I think if you want to be a disciple of Jesus, you should consider what you can do to help. Yes. Wonderful. Well, Dr. Cobb, again, thank you so much uh, for your time this morning. Thank you uh, for the great amount of work uh, that you have blessed so many people with. Um, and just keep doing what you're doing. I'm so thankful uh, for you and, and for all that you do and the, the influence it's had on myself. So thank you again. Thank you for the opportunity. All right, Dr. Cobb, have a great rest of your day. All right, listeners, thank you so much uh, for hanging out with us today. Again, that was Dr. John Cobb. Uh, You should go check out his work. Um, You really should. Uh, He, yeah, I can't say enough good things. And again, Trip Fuller, if you're listening, man, thank you so much uh, for helping me out with this interview. Um, Yeah, I owe you something. I don't know. Next time you're in America, I'll like buy you a beer or something or I'll make you one. Whatever you want. (laughs) Just let me know. All right, listeners, uh, again, thank you for listening. And as always, go Caps. Peace and love, guys.